Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 64. Through each episode, we dig deep into topics and questions to see what the Bible says. several occasions in the scriptures where people are supernaturally transported by the Holy Spirit. Are these literal events or are they visions? More on that later. But first, why did Jesus become incarnate at that particular year in time? In other words, of all the times when Jesus could have been born, why was he born then? Let's find out. Kelly asks, are there any theories as to why Jesus became incarnate at that particular year in time? Fascinating question. Uh, I mean, why of all the times was Jesus born at that time? And we've got to say it wasn't year zero. You know, that calendar was introduced uh, sometime later. In fact, most historians and or theologians think that Jesus was born sometime between 4 and 6 BC. So you could say that Jesus was before, uh, born four years before himself, uh, and certainly he was always ahead of his time. Um, but as I said before, different calendars were used back in those days. The Hebrew calendar, uh, and uh, Tal, you might be, want to speak into that. Uh, by the way, Tal is going to be joining me uh, next week on Tuesday Night Live and the Digging Deeper podcast, my Jewish friend. We're going to be looking at things from a Hebrew uh, Jewish perspective, particularly the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew scriptures that we Christians uh, wrap up and call old. Uh, we're going to take those and have a look at them, hopefully in a new and fresh way. Uh, so that will be next week. But according to the, the Hebrew calendar, and the Hebrews run their calendar on a lunar year, which is 360 days. So according to that calendar, Jesus was born in the year 3758. So 2023 is the year 5783, 5783, and that will be that way until the Jewish New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, and that's on the evening of Friday, September the 15th through the evening of Sunday, the 17th of September this year when the year will kick over to 5784. Um, and they run that year, uh, that calendar rather, believing that it started at the anniversary of the creation of Adam and Eve, so almost 6,000 years ago. And so that will be one of the questions I'm going to ask Tal is um, does he believe that Adam and Eve were literally created 6,000 years ago? Now I know um, some of my Christian friends um, and some some wonderful people who really, really love the Lord and sincerely believe that the earth uh, was created sometime between 6,000 and 10,000 years ago. Uh, and that that so the, it's a young earth. It's a young earth creation. Uh, and so we'll get into that next week. At the time of Jesus, the Gentile world was using the Julian calendar, which was instituted by Julius Caesar. Uh, he started this in 45 BC. He ordered a calendar consisting of 12 months based on a solar year, not a lunar year. So this um, calendar employed a cycle 
of three years of 365 days, followed by a leap year of 366 days. The Julian calendar was widely used until the 16th century when the Gregorian calendar was introduced on the 14th, rather the 24th of February in 1582. And so the calendar we use today is relatively modern compared to calendars that have been used for thousands of years. The date at that time on the 24th of Feb uh, was advanced by 10, oh, sorry, it wasn't on that date, it was introduced on the 24th of February, but then later that year, um, the date was advanced by 10 years. And so that was in October of 1582. So on the 4th of October, uh, the next day was the 15th of October. So they missed out on that 10 days to advance things at that time. The Gregorian calendar relied on a new method of calculating leap years and the 10 days were skipped in October of 1582 in order to make up for the extra days which had been accrued under the Julian calendar and established a more accurate accounting for leap years to avoid the accrual of extra days in the future. So that's a little bit of background uh, as to the various calendars that have been used over the years. The terms BC and AD were introduced into the Julian calendar by Dion Dionysius Exugius uh, in 525 AD, um, but not widely used until the 9th century. And so again, BC and AD are more modern uh, constructs. AD stands for Anno Domini, which means in the year of the uh, Lord or the year of the Lord, and BC means before Christ. And of course, these have now been changed, uh, particularly by secular institutions, uh, to BCE and CE. BCE being before the Common Era, and CE referring to the Common Era. So you'll see that a lot of people don't use BC and AD anymore. With that history in mind. Why was Jesus born in 4 BC? Why was he born in the year, the Jewish year, 3758? Why that time and why not some other time? Well, Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5 tell us the answer to this question. And really the beginning statement here in Galatians 4, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So think about that for, for a moment. When the set time had fully come, um, the Amplified Bible translates that as, but when in God's plan, the proper time had fully come, God sent his son. And the New King James Version of the Bible says, when the fullness of time had come. So it was the right time. The Greek language here, incidentally, is applied to ships in the first century. So classical Greek would use this Greek word concerning ships. Um, ships were docked at port. They were filled with their freight, their merchandise, their cargo, sailors, oarsmen, soldiers, rigging, until everything was ready. And at that time, then they were ready to set sail for their purpose. So that Greek word is used there of a ship being actually ready to sail. Uh, the same word would be used concerning Noah's Ark. Once it was fully built, finished, covered in pitch, 
um, filled with animals and food and straw and buckets and spades and everything else that they would need to float on the flood for that period of time, then it was ready. And so Jesus was born when everything was ready, uh, at the right time, when God's plan of salvation was right or ripe to be accomplished. And so why was this the right time? Well, there's a number of reasons uh, in answer to that question. The first of them was that there was a very strong Jewish expectation of the Messiah to come. There was, uh, as you're probably aware of your history, uh, Rome had conquered much of the then known world, including Israel, Palestine, the Promised Land, and much of Roman rule was oppressive. And it made the Jews keen for their saviour, a saviour who would come and set them free, defeat the Roman armies and um, re-establish the kingdom of God uh, in Jerusalem with Israel uh, at the head. Of course, Jesus did come uh, to set people free, but not in the way that many of the Jewish people in the first century would have imagined. Uh, He was their saviour. But Jesus came to set people free, not just Israel, but all people came to set people free from sin, from Satan, and from death, but not from Rome. And so there was this strong Jewish expectation uh, for a Messiah to come. People were ready. They were on the lookout. So it would be a good time uh, for the Messiah to be born. The second reason that Jesus was born at that particular time was that there was universal peace and and unity. Rome had conquered much of the then known world uh, and he and they had unified the world under its government. Uh, the empire was also relatively peaceful. I remember studying this in high school um, quite a few years ago now. Uh, the Pax Romana, do you remember your teachers talking about that? Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And that stretched from a time before Jesus was born, probably just a little bit more than a decade, Um, So around 27 BC through to 180 BC, so it was about a 200-year period there of relative peace. It wasn't completely peaceful. There were uprisings and all that kind of stuff, but it was a very peaceful, calm time in society. This was a time of unprecedented peace and economic prosperity throughout the empire. Uh, The empire, remember, was bordered by England uh, in the north, Morocco in the south, so the southern part of Africa, and right across to places like Iraq in the east. Um, The areas, of course, that I've just mentioned were the first areas to receive the gospel. And so realising that um, the world was largely peaceful, it would have led to the quick um, communication of the gospel. And, And remember, of course, Roman soldiers were coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, the first Gentile, to become a Christian in the book of Acts was a Roman centurion. And so some of these Roman soldiers would then have been sent across to England, for example, to Britain, and take the gospel with them. In fact, Roman soldiers were the first uh, people to carry the gospel to Britain itself. And so universal peace and unity, and that really leads to point number three, and that is the ease of travel, because peace and unity allowed for ease of travel allowing the first Christians to spread the gospel. Such freedom to travel would have been impossible at other times, times of war, 
Pompey had rid the Mediterranean of, of pirates uh, and Roman soldiers kept the peace on the roads. And just a comment on the roads, of course, as well. Uh, Roman roads, the Romans built incredible roads. They were sturdy, they were straight. In fact, during that 200 years of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana, they built over 400,000 kilometres of roads. And some of these roads are still in existence today in their original form. So it shows how incredibly well-built those roads were. They connected major centres all over the Roman Empire. So it made travel in the peaceful uh, empire of the day incredibly easy for people. They were able to sail as well. Pirates have been rid from the Mediterranean Sea, and so it made travel incredibly safe. The fourth one is really, really important as well, and that is that there was a universal language, and that is uh, Greek. So you remember uh, in your history, before Rome, the Roman Empire, there was the Greek Empire. And even though Rome had now conquered the Greek Empire militarily, uh, the Greeks dominated culturally. And so from the Greek conquests, really, under Alexander the Great, it was a common form of the Greek language that was universally spoken, and that was Koine Greek. It was spoken uh, throughout the empire, uh, making it possible to communicate the gospel to many different people groups through one common language. And so, you know, I mean, you go to different countries today, and I've been to countries where people, very few people speak English. And it's, if you don't know some of the local language, it's incredibly difficult to communicate. And so that then becomes a barrier to being able to communicate. Uh, I spent some time in the year 2000, a couple of weeks, visiting a couple from Bayside Church who had gone over to Mozambique, South Africa first to train, and then into northern Mozambique, where they'd established a medical centre. And in the early days of Bayside Church, we supported them financially. And in the year 2000, I flew over there uh, to visit them and preached in several churches while I was there. Uh, but there were, we needed two translators or two interpreters. So I would preach in English and I had to cut every every sermon down to about 10 minutes because we had to have two lots of translation, which then, of course, padded it all out to around 30 minutes. Uh, so I had to keep it very short, very simple. And so first of all, I would speak in English and then my first translator would translate into Portuguese uh, for the men but then the women, many of whom don't go to school or don't go to school for very long, um, they only knew the local dialect, which was Makua, um, a Mozambican dialect. And so then this lady had to translate from Portuguese into, into Makua. And so I had to wait for the two of them to finish, and then I would start with my next line or two. So you can imagine how difficult that is and then what a barrier that becomes to be able to communicate the gospel. Of course, Today, many um, countries, you have a significant number of the population where English is spoken, and, and even in some language, uh, some countries, say like Singapore, for example, where there is an Asian language, um, still the vast majority of people there would be very fluent um, in English, and an increasing number of people in countries like Malaysia and Indonesia as well. So but back in the first century, almost everybody knew Koine Greek. Jesus spoke Koine Greek um, and Aramaic. Most of the New Testament, the original manuscripts were in Koine Greek, a little bit in Aramaic, but mainly in Koine Greek. 
And so it made communication incredibly easy uh, with that universal language. Number five is a there was a spiritual void. Um, there were lots of idols, multiple gods and goddesses, uh, but people were disillusioned because these uh, false gods had failed to give victory over the Roman conquerors. Uh, people felt genuinely let down and abandoned by the worship of these multiple idols. Um, at the same time, Greek philosophy and science of the time left other people feeling spiritually empty, uh, very similar to the way that, say, modern atheism and our extreme secular society and maybe governments like um, authoritarian governments and communist governments that, that really kind of rule out God and spirituality. And when we do that, it leaves people feeling like they're in a spiritual void and they seek then to fill that void. Uh, we even see people like that today, people connecting uh, with our church and other churches because they feel empty spiritually. They haven't, you know, I, I mean, I'm fascinated by science and all of that. And science answers um, a lot of the what questions, but it doesn't always answer the why questions. And, and, and people who they want something deep. They want something that's going to be satisfying uh, in the very depths of their being. Um, they want to then seek to spill that, uh, fill that spiritual void. Um, some people, of course, as I did in my in my youth, tried to fill that with false religion by lots of kind of mysticism and occult and drugs and alcohol abuse and all of those kind of things. But all those, are, they don't fill. Uh, they might satisfy for a short period of time, but afterwards you feel worse <laughs> than you did before. And so that void is still there. And that void led me eventually uh, to discover the good news of Jesus. And uh, as a young man between the ages of 19 and 21, I started this gradual um, movement toward Jesus and at the age of 21 fully committed my life uh, to following him. And so it's that spiritual void that, that we still need to be aware of today. Um, uh, back in the first century, it was a polytheistic society. There were lots of gods, lots of ways to please the gods and appease the gods and you know, try to calm them down when they were uh, violent and angry and wrathful and all of this kind of stuff. And, and against this backdrop comes the wonderful simplicity of the gospel of Jesus, not a wrathful God that needs to be appeased, but rather a God who loves the world so much that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in the simplicity of God in human form, living, dying, rising again, would not perish but have eternal life. And so people were drawn to the simplicity of the Christian message and uh, followed him in their thousands. And so a spiritual void that needed to be filled. The final one, um, and there's probably others, but these to me are the, the six main reasons why Jesus was born at this time, were the Greek and Roman mystery religions. And uh, many of these ancient religions consisted of the offering of blood sacrifices to a saviour god. And as I said before, it was often uh, a god who people weren't ever sure how to please the God and if they'd pleased the God. So they kind of, you know, those people, you're really not sure how they are 
when you're in their presence. And so you're kind of tiptoeing, you're walking on eggshells, you don't want to upset them, you know it can be a bit unpleasant if they do get upset, so you never completely relax. And so that's what the gods of the first century world were like, these Greek and Roman mystery religions. And so they had to sacrifice animals over and over and over again to try and appease these temperamental gods, little g gods. Again, if you contrast that with the Christian gospel, a saviour God who became a sacrifice that ended blood sacrifice forever, one of the reasons that Jesus died on the cross. The Greeks also believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the body. Well, the gospel promises eternal life. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. And please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Selena says, uh, hi, Pastor Rob. I was wondering if you could discuss what it means to be transported by the Spirit. Numerous occasions are mentioned in the Bible about this, um, and Selena refers to Acts 8, verses 26 to 40, the uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip was just snatched away at the end and found himself somewhere else. Uh, Jesus' temptations in the desert, particularly where he was led to the highest point of the temple. I would imagine that if he was physically walking to the highest point on the temple, he would have been seen and questioned and most likely stopped by people. Paul talks about someone entering the third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. Is this teleportation or is it more a uh, more of a vision-type experience like Ezekiel's and John's in Revelation? How would this be explained, interpreted, in modern times. So brilliant question, Selena, um, and thank you for raising it. As mentioned in the question, both Ezekiel and um, John, the Apostle John, experienced transportation by the Spirit in vision form. So let's have a look at some scripture uh, in this regard. Uh, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 3, he stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem. And then he goes on, he says, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. So fascinating. Uh, was he transported? <laughs> I didn't know the Holy Spirit came along and literally picked people up by the hair of their head. i got to say, he's never done that to me. Um, of course, he couldn't do it to me these days, um, but even when I had hair, uh, he didn't do it to me. But the Spirit lifted him up between heaven and earth, but then he tells us that he was lifting Ezekiel up in visions, visions that God was giving, giving him. So in vision form, he was being taken to Jerusalem. A uh, couple of chapters later in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 24, he says, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the Spirit of God. So again, fascinating that he was transported to where the exiles were in the Babylon Empire, 
and probably in Babylon itself as a city, but it was there in vision form. Uh, Revelation, uh, as Selena mentioned, chapter 1, verses 9 to 13, says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Interesting. Now, it actually doesn't say it's a vision at this point. Um, he does say that he's in the spirit, and I'll touch on that in just a moment. He turned around to see the voice that was speaking. And so you don't turn around to see a voice. You turn around to see the person uh, who was speaking, and I guess that may be what he meant. So the time here of John's writing or speaking was probably the end of 69 AD. Now, different theologians disagree. Some put it at a much later date in the 90s AD. Uh, I personally think it's earlier, um, just after the time of Nero, Vespasian became Roman Empire following Nero's death, but he was occupied in Alexandria and so didn't return to the city of Rome until September the following year. And so during these months, his oldest son, Titus, Prince Titus, was left in charge of the military while um, his Vespasian's younger son, Domitian, who eventually became emperor, represented the family in the Roman Senate and was called Caesar. It was during these months the Apostle John was arrested by Domitian and banished to the prison island of Patmos where he was forced into hard labour in the mines. While on Patmos, John received the revelation of Jesus Christ, which he wrote down and sent to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Upon his release from the island prison, John moved to Ephesus, where he became the pastor of the Ephesian church until his death at the age of 94 in the year 100. In Revelation chapter 1, John doesn't explicitly say that he's seeing these things in vision. There is a title put in the um, the chapter in the NIV, at least, that says John's vision of Christ. But remember, the Bible titles are not inspired. They've been added by the editors as an aid to us in reading and understanding the Scriptures. So it's not until Revelation chapter 20, uh, sorry, chapter 9, Revelation 9 and verse 17, that he actually uses the word vision for the first and only time uh, in the book of Revelation. And it's in uh, context to the uh, horsemen of the apocalypse, Revelation 9 and verse 17, the horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. So he infers there that at least that part of Revelation was given in vision form. He then goes on to describe them. And so we conclude that Revelation actually consists of a series of visions that John received while he was in the spirit. It's an interesting term. In the spirit just simply means that he was spending time, um, deliberately spending time with God. Uh, he'd come away from his arduous work uh, on the prison island, probably given one day off a week, and he'd set himself aside to spend time in worship and prayer. And so he was enjoying a heightened awareness 
of God's presence, which is what happens when we spend time on our own or with others in worship and prayer and the word. And so on this particular occasion, the Lord's Day, so the first day of the week, what we would refer to as the Sunday, he was spending that time with God. He probably had a habit of doing that. Um, but on this particular occasion, the Spirit of God decided to give him the revelation, which he ended up, of course, writing down and sending as a letter to the seven major churches of Asia Minor, uh, which we would know as modern-day Turkey. So what we find in these stories is a blurring of distinctions uh, in the body or out of it, vision or reality, and the people are often unsure. Paul was like that in 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 1 to 4. He said, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I love that statement because he then repeats it again in uh, in the next verse. Uh, he says, and I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. Fascinating. So the things that Paul is talking about here, we will never know what those things are because no one's permitted to tell those um, inexpressible things. What did Paul hear? <laughs> we'll never know because they're inexpressible, right? But it is fascinating. So Paul says twice there that he wasn't sure whether he was in the body, physically transported, or out of the body, or having a vision because he talks about it as vision. So he's really not sure. Paul's speaking here in the third person as an act of humility. So he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, but he's actually talking about himself. From verse 6, he starts speaking in the first person. Uh, he uses me and mine to show that the experience that he's talking about was, in fact, his own experience where he was taken up either in the body, out of the body, or in vision form. He doesn't know, but God knows, to paradise, to the third heaven, which are synonymous terms and synonymous places. It's the place that Jesus said to the thief on the cross who just simply said, Lord, remember me when you get into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, so this man, this thief was taken up to the third heaven upon his death. The second heaven is out of space, the sun, moon, the stars. And the first heaven is the sky, the atmosphere. The third heaven is where God dwells. And this is the place that Paul was taken up into in some shape or form. And, and so uh, Selena mentions two of those stories where it appear, appears that the individuals were uh, bodily transported by the spirit. And so let's have a look at those two things now just quickly. Number one is um, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Fascinating story. You can read it in your own time. You'll find it in Acts chapter 8 and verses 26 to 40 uh, where Philip is taken or told to go uh, from this incredible revival of the Holy Spirit in Samaria. People are getting saved. They're getting delivered. They're getting healed. 
Um, Philip's probably like a pig in mud, just, you know, or maybe not the best analogy for a good Jewish boy. Sorry about that. But uh, he's having a ball in the middle of this incredible move of the Holy Spirit. And then the Spirit speaks to him and tells him to travel down to Gaza on his own. And, and he doesn't give him the reason why. So in the story, Philip is traveling on the desert road toward this Gaza uh, in a desert place. And he has this amazing experience um, with this guy. I'll get to uh, the verse in just a moment. Um, an Ethiopian eunuch who's riding a chariot and he's reading the scriptures and he's up to a part where he doesn't know what it's talking about we would we would know it as isaiah in chapter 53 and so philip says well do you understand what you're reading and the guy goes no how can i unless someone explains it and so philip uh joins him and explains the scripture to him and um we don't know what philip says but it was pretty convincing because the ethiopian eunuch would have said well um uh, I, I want to be baptized and here's water so he'd chosen to be a follower of jesus which is amazing because this guy, he's a eunuch. He'd been to Jerusalem to worship, but of course, uh, according to the Tanakh, he was not allowed in the temple because he was a eunuch. So here the Holy Spirit is leading Philip away from a wonderful move of God to share the gospel with one man who would have been kept out of the presence of God, and yet here the Spirit of God welcomes him in with open arms. Isn't that just awesome? Isn't that wonderful? And so when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but when, uh, but went on his way rejoicing. So the eunuch's rejoicing. Suddenly Philip just disappears. What happens to Philip? Well, the next verse tells us, Acts 8, 40. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So the language here suggests supernatural movement because Philip had received divine favor for obedience, which is wonderful for Philip. Um, I have been uh, obedient on many occasions, and there would have been uh, many occasions where a bit of supernatural transportation would have been absolutely fantastic. Uh, great cure for jet lag when you're traveling back from international destinations like Africa. So, Lord, one day that would be fantastic, but thank you so much. Uh, the distance from Gaza to Azotus is just under 40 kilometres, and so it was about a day's walk that the Holy Spirit saved Philip. And next time we see Philip, Acts, 40, Acts 8.40, uh, Philip is preaching in these coastal towns, and what he's doing is paving the way for the Apostle Peter's mission in the same area in uh, a few months' time. So nice experience for Philip, as I say, I would enjoy that experience one day and I imagine you would too. The second um, reference that Selena brings up is the temptations of Jesus in the desert. And we find those in Luke chapter 4, um, Matthew chapter 3. Um, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. He was led by the Spirit. In other words, God was planning this testing of Jesus. And uh, I'm so glad about this because what Jesus was experiencing uh, in this testing in the desert was 
experienced testing and temptation. So he knew what it was like as a human being to go through temptation, to go through times of testing. So remember that in human form, Jesus experienced everything that you and I experience. And, and the writer to the Hebrews tells us why this is important, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. It's wonderful news, wonderful news that Jesus was tempted in every way or at every point. The Greek word here uh, refers to the various parts that make up a whole. Uh, and so the following three temptations that Jesus experienced, they're recorded in Matthew chapter 3, deal with the points of temptation that you and I experience in daily life. So the first temptation was he'd been fasting for 40 days. He would have been hungry. And uh, the devil comes along and says, there's stones. You've got the power to turn them into bread. Do it. I wonder if he gave him hot bread smells at the same time. And, of course, each time Jesus quotes scripture to overcome the temptation. The second temptation is the one that Selena brings up. The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple, said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then the devil quotes scripture at Jesus. Jesus quotes scripture back. They're basically firing verses at each other. Jesus says, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third temptation, the devil took him into a high mountain, a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And that's, of course, presuming that the devil actually owns the planet. Anyway, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so um, is in this story, the question is, is the devil bodily transporting Jesus to various locations? And I don't believe that that's happening. Uh, firstly, because we should not attribute that level of power to Satan over the Son of God. Um, all power belongs to Jesus. And so that means that the devil would only have the power that Jesus would allow him to have. And then secondly, the language is evidently metaphorical, um, especially connected with the last temptation. It says there, the devil took him to a very high mountain and uh, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Now, nice thought, but there isn't a mountain in the world uh, that could give you the perspective of earth. Wouldn't matter how high the mountain was because the earth is round. So you couldn't see all the kingdoms of the earth by being on top of a high mountain. And so it's likely then that this is a demonically inspired vision that Jesus defeats by quoting scripture. At the end, the devil leaves and the angels come and attend to Jesus, uh, which is wonderful. So I don't believe that's bodily transportation. Another one that I'll bring up uh, just as we wrap this up is Elijah transported to heaven. And we will talk about this in a bit more detail next week with my friend Tal, but 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, talking about Elijah and Elisha walking along, as they were walking along, talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. 
So is this a vision or is this a medical, metaphorical story or is it a, bodily, a literal bodily experience? I personally believe it's imagery. The whirlwind is sometimes connected with God's activity uh, in, and his voice, but it's always connected in that way um, through imagery. So, for example, the book of Job, which is a play, it's Eastern poetry. God speaks to, God, uh, to Job out of a storm. Uh, same with Jonah. Uh, but to Elijah, God had not spoken with dramatic effect, not in the wind, not in the earthquake or the fire, but rather spoke in a still small voice. The chariot imagery here is a little bit less certain. According to the Bible background commentary in ancient Near Eastern imagery, major deities are at times accompanied by charioteers. And so I think it's probably imagery. Um, I have a feeling that uh, from what Tal has said to me privately that he believes that Elijah was bodily transported to heaven. And as I say, we'll have a little bit more to say about that next week. So there you go. I believe that uh, most of the transportation stories in the Bible are in the form of vision. Paul experienced this firsthand and wasn't sure whether in the body or apart from the body. I do not know. God knows, he says. And if he didn't know, maybe we never will. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob is joined by his Jewish friend, Tal Spinrad. They'll be talking about faith and the Bible from a Hebrew perspective. We hope you'll join us then.